0: Hi, everyone. Today, we have a rare treat for you. Not one, but two Thomas Mann experts are going to share their insights with us and with each other. Fall 2020 fellow and professor of writing at Columbia University, Susan Brunofsky, chats with spring 2020 fellow and professor of German at Dartmouth College, Veronica Fischner. Making her second appearance on the Berlin Journal podcast, Fischner has most recently written about Thomas Mann's immigrant heritage, telling the story of his mother, Julia de Silva Bruns, who was born in Brazil and immigrated to Germany at age seven. Susan Bernofsky, on the other hand, is currently translating Mann's 1924 masterpiece, The Magic Mountain. The discussion that follows is at turn surprising and contains just the right amount of bookishness, providing both a deeper understanding of Thomas Mann and the art of translation.
1: Okay. Um, So I'm Veronica Fuchtner and I'm speaking to Susan Bernofsky. Um, I'm sitting here in Berlin and Susan is in New York. And um, we, um, I'm a past fellow of the American Academy and Susan is a current fellow of the American Academy. Um, And our work both relates to Thomas Mann. Uh, My fellowship um, was for a book that I'm completing about uh, Thomas Mann's Brazilian mother and um, his relationship to race and nation as a result of this story of migration and um, Susan doing a new translation of uh, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain and um, so I'm I'm really excited to talk to you today Susan about um, about this work and about both of our interest in in Thomas Mann and uh, maybe we can dive right in and um, I just um, I'm just curious what drew you to Thomas Mann and what your relationship is uh, to him as a writer, um, as a thinker.
2: You know, that that's, in my case, it's a really complicated story because um, I came at him from like the absolutely wrongish way. Um, like the first thing I remember hearing about Thomas Mann was like, when I was studying creative writing at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts as a young person in New Orleans. Um, and that was um, Vladimir Nabokov's disapproval of him as a novelist. And I thought, oh, well, you know, Nabokov thinks he's pretentious. So hmm. Um, but I read Death in Venice and really loved it. And it was creepy. and and. Um, I, I still have this project in, in the back of my mind that might be there forever and never acted on that I'd sort of like to do a version of, of Death in Venice where I edit out all the statements about the artist because I think that if you actually remove them it would be a weirdly different and maybe more appealing to me. Um, but I read, I read um, Magic Mountain in the Helen Porter translation as a young person and was both sort of bowled over by it and a little skeptical of it. You know, I'm reading these sentences like, what is time? And thinking, oh my God, really? (laughs) And then later I read the book in German and sort of got the tone more. And I think that my, my understanding of the tone from re- have, having read it as a young person in English was not at all the way I understand it now. Um, and then I, you know, I, I was working on Robert Walzer for all these years. You know, I translated seven books by him. I just finished writing a biography, and Walzer is the absolute one hundred percent opposite of Mon. Except they both they both are very ironic writers, but in completely different understandings of irony. And now that I'm getting into the Manian irony, I feel like I'm getting a much better grasp of of the Magic Mount that I ever had before. And that's playing in very much to how I translate it because um, there are so many things that he seems to be saying with a straight face that is that he's actually, I think, not serious about. Um, and I'm, you know, thinking about how can I communicate that while translating, you know?
1: Well, humor is generally a very hard thing to translate, right? I mean, it's it's a hard thing to translate culture between cultures, but also, you know, from a, a different time to today, right? And then uh, to make sure that a translation doesn't feel dated right away right mm. like that humor is, is yeah. a key part of that because humor is so uh, contingent historically and, yeah. and and contingent on illusions right so how 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 do you deal yeah. with that
2: well well like like here's an example of something i was working on yesterday you know i'm i'm doing the 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 by the the, the, the that nostalgia chapter, chapter two, that we're we're getting Hans Kastrop's childhood um, at Teenapel's house. And there's a description of Teen He was a um, sehr gewichtiger man. And man is being funny with this because you know he's saying that he's important, but he's also saying that he's fat. Right. So I've I've you know, I spent like three hours researching all the different words for this. I, right now, he's in my translation: a man of substance. Um, you know, will that will that come through? But it's in a context where where we're thinking about his physicality. So I'm I'm hoping that the word substance will, you know. I thought about weighty but he's a weighty individual yeah I, m- I might def- I might go back to weighty weighty is weighty is more a cheap is a cheaper blow than substance is so right. you know this is, so you know in what way exactly is he being mean um, right yeah so you have to
1: really find his particular voice right or, or find a, a kind of the truth of his voice in a way, you know? Is he, is he mean? Is he ironic? You know, how subtle is his humor? Is it cruel? You know, is it cruel humor? Uh,
2: so- I think it is it, kind of cruel. Right. Which, which you know, it, it, which in a way is like, I'm still sort of annoyed with because I'm coming from Robert Vase, who was a million complicated things, but he was not cruel. And his irony is a very loving one. And Mons is a little, you know, he's a little bit, he's a little bit looking down. Um, That may wind up working fine in the end, but it's a very different sort of thing. And I I feel that he's like, still coming off the success of Buddenbrooks, still looking to signal his own positionality as a important person with important things to impart. And right. I, I feel that in the writing also. Right. Yeah, no, and and I mean, I have to say for me, that's a
1: that's a part of the way he writes and the way he enacts being a writer, right? That I have a hard time connecting to as a scholar. Mm. I mean, there are, you know, there are writers who are just love, you know, they are just, you, you can't help but love them, and and Thomas Mann, I mean I know some people do, but um, but that's never been my relationship uh, to him, and I'm wondering how how that feels for you, um, as yeah. you as you enact some of his traits actually, right?
2: I I at this point I'm feeling more admiration than love, but that may also change you know i'm i'm I'm, i feel like i'm still near the beginning of the journey i have a lot of respect for him and just respect for the um level of complexity with which he is performing this this feat of self-positioning and i wonder you know i wonder i mean you're you're an expert in in the you know the the back his his background through his childhood and i wonder if he isn't maybe trying to prove something vis-a-vis his own heritage in this in this you know he was living at a time of great you know upstirrings of nationalism around the first world war where you know all kinds of intellectuals who wouldn't have thought of themselves as being interested in nationalism became suddenly kind of patriotic, you know? Um, and he lived through all that. And I, you know, I, I wonder what that period did to him psychically thinking about his own personal history. I mean, do you have ideas about that from having studied his mother's history?
1: Of course, I mean, I do think that, um, I, I, I think that, um, the fact that his mother migrated to Germany, um, that she you know, had to learn German as a child, um, had to come into a canon of high German culture and had to learn to embody that, um, was, was really formative for the entire family. And I think there was also a stigma attached to her origin and um, a kind of a racial question mark that was attached to her origin that I I think um, really did matter um, to to Thomas Mann and um, that he also um, expresses. And so I think there there was a lot at stake um, Mm -hmm. for him to to present himself as a German writer, right? Like really, really German, German. And um, you can see that in the uh, the debates or in in the controversies around um his his status uh before world war one for example the attacks uh that the uh, literary critic Adolf Bartels um mm. was really racist <laughs> um he he attacked Thomas Mann and um called him Jewish and and so on and, wow. and so in in the reaction um that Thomas Mann has he's he's clearly you know um he's he's defending himself against these attacks but you can tell that they hit something, you know, that um, it, it hits very close to home, and um, and so there is a, a sense that he has to establish himself, maybe uh, more so and in different ways than than other writers have to um, uh, present themselves. Um, I would definitely definitely say that, and obviously there is also preoccupation with with race in his work. Um, you know the division between north and south and and that's something the
2: the blonde little boys and the and the dark-haired little boys
1: of course and and uh, and then you know in magic mountain you have uh clavdia shosha right you have the 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 asiatic woman right you know and um so i mean there and there's a preoccupation with jewishness of course you know and um so I, i do
2: think that that plays out um everywhere <laughs> it's really complicated everywhere. i was just thinking this morning about his own childhood experiences you know he lost his father i think the year he turned 16 his father died and he's writing about hans kastorp having been right. orphaned at a younger age than that but you know was there something about you know his own experience of losing his father and the father sold the house where they were living and the family had to move to a different house. And that displacement, he, you know, I'm just translating him writing about Hans Kostrup's displacement from one house to another. And you know, Mann was 16, that's a little older, but that's still kind of young to have your world turned upside down. Right.
1: And he stayed, he stayed when his mother and um, some of his siblings moved to Munich, he stayed back actually alone in Lübeck. So I I think Mm. you're right. I mean, there is a sense of being a bit at sea. And I I think that also translates into the the specific temporality that Magic Mountain sets up, right? It's a, it's a suspension, you know, of time in in so many levels. It's a suspension of becoming fully adult, right, it's mm-hmm. a suspension of becoming healthy, it's a suspension of um, a nation moving forward, you know, yeah. it's a suspension of so many things, and um, yeah. so I, I think that the magic mountain really captures captures that on on many levels, mm-hmm. um, and that, that leads me maybe to, uh, I mean, talking about the contemporary relevance also of of the magic mountain and translating this text in a, in a time of its own suspension right that we're all experiencing um and and uh, time of seclusion or uh you know uh, uh, limitation so how how does that resonate
2: and as you're thinking about the yeah. text yeah I'm still chewing over what, what you just said about the biography because I think that this is the gives there is this emotional core in the book that I'm feeling along with the like sardonicness and, and sarcasm. But but yeah, he's I mean the fact that you know I'm sitting cooped up in my apartment in New York, which I'm I I you know I'm a homebody. I'm very happy to be home, but it's also <laughs> wrong and strange. And you know he's writing about. Um, a sanatorium for patients with tuberculosis but you know i know that he wrote the novel during and you know he started it before and finished it after the 1918 influenza pandemic and the, you know there's this this sense in that you know this thing that happened around 100 years ago was that n- weirdly not so unlike what we're experiencing now and it's a lot to think about because you know I think that his experience of living through the pandemic is crucial for this book but he doesn't write about the pandemic which is just like hard to understand you know it was he started the book before it and he finished it after it and he sets up the chronological sequencing of the book in such a way that the book ends right at the beginning of World War I. So before, sorry, yeah. So before the 1918 pandemic, um, but Mann himself certainly experienced it. Um, one of his daughters was ill with it. And so, and so I feel like his, you know, it's yet another, another instance of displacing, like, you know, he was already planning to write about a tuberculosis sanatorium beforehand, but the story I think changed um, you know, between when he started it before World War I and when he finished, it was published in 24s. So I feel like he's writing about his own personal and his family's experiences while pretending not to. And so there's this sort of emotional kernel of, of autobiographical truth that gives the that gives sense of there being some, a psychological stake and emotional stake to all of this suffering that he's describing, even though, even as he's describing it in these very detached terms. Right. Yeah.
1: So maybe the, the detachment is is a, a, <laughs> a, a displacement, right? I mean of sorts. I mean it hits a maybe a protection. A protection. It hits closer to home than than it actually comes out in the novel. Um, I, I, and I, I think I, I think it reverberates in, I mean, that's why the novel is, you know, why so many people do connect to the novel because it is not just you know, the 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 caricature of it, you know, there is some a core to it that that is actually serious and that contains that suffering um, that you mm-hmm. described. I mean, a lot of people I meet have some sort of magic mountain story, you know, like or they come, they come to the book, you know, like saying, oh, I read this when I was, you know, that and that age or, and yeah. it's one of those books that people, you know, it's like one of those canonical books that people read um, at a particular age, like Hesse or, you know, they read <laughs> uh, Muzil, right, Man Without Qualities or so. So it's. Um...
2: <laughs> Nerdy people like you read Man Without Qualities at a young age. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, I read it at a young age I read it <laughs> as a student <laughs> but uh but yeah but uh there, there are these books um that that are transformative right and and are yeah. to personal experience yeah. and I think it's because of that core of suffering that is in there that mm-hmm. everyone can connect to
2: it's also crucial that it's a book about a young person and that you know it's you know, this the sort of coming of, he comes of age by getting trapped in this stasis place that, you know, it's like you you can't escape the orbit once you are there and, you know, then right. things happen and then your psychological and your spiritual and your philosophical development all sort of happen to you while you're in this little weird closed environment. Um, you know, in a, in a way it, it, it's sort of like a Kafka story except not, you know, man who i mean it's a great premise for a kafka story a man who is not sick goes to a sanatorium right i mean (laughs) it's
1: great that's true and you don't know is this going to be a joke or is this going to be a you know a tragedy (laughs) but uh um i mean one of the things i mean i was looking at the book again and and one of the things i was i mean we talked about the things that um that connect contemporary readers um, to this novel. And I'm wondering also about the things that don't connect. And Mm. there is something about the humor as I was looking at it and I was looking at the narrator I, I mean, um, he uses we, right, very often in the narration. Yeah. It's a we, and I kept asking myself, who, who is this we, right? Am, am I included? You know, who is included in this we? Yeah, I don't think and, either of
2: us is included, frankly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suspect not. <laughs> and I mean, there's obviously also the uh, one of the things I that often strikes me is that you have very, uh, you have, you know, a huge male. Fan base of Thomas Mann, and um, and you know, for female readers, I think it's um, more complicated, maybe in, in some ways, uh, the, the identifications and so yeah. on, and um, and also they're very. Um, I, I noticed there are very few female scholars actually of Thomas Mann, uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm
2: wondering what what your take is. Um... <laughs> it feels to me like a really male book but then like you know modernism is also generally pretty male it's not it's not unusual of for the period I feel like this this yeah I mean the 19th century is also pretty darn male except well well yeah no not yeah no not actually I take that back that's not really true but you know Robert Vasa is also pretty male, and Hesse is also. But you know, the, what about the homoerotic threads in all of this? You know, is that is that is that putting some little 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 into the into this into this monolithic maleness? I do feel a little excluded by Mann's universe. I mean, I feel like his narrator would not consider me a conversation partner, and I do feel that. Why um, is that? you know, female Jewish, um, not, you know, not of, not of a fancy family. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe it might just be me too, but I I feel like he, it, it feels like an insider talking to insiders. Right. Um, And I'm not convinced that I'm one of those insiders. I feel like I would need to be able to smoke a cigar at least or something. (laughs) I don't know. But, you know, that's okay. I mean, I, I think those of us who study older periods of literature who are women, or at least not men, are used to, you know, used to saying, okay, you know, we're going to enter these spaces where, you know, maybe the spaces were not designed with us in mind, but... There may still be things that we can get from and take from and give to these spaces. Um, I do feel that sort of a, you know, his view of society and his somewhat satirical point of view about how things are put together leave some space. You know, he's talking about he's talking about you know traditional hierarchies a lot. With skepticism, and that opens a door. Um, I don't think that he's thinking that you and I are going to be running through that door, but he is still opening the door. And you know, this is a you know, a hundred years ago, and you know, a lot right. has changed in a hundred years. And of course, we read and think and understand ourselves differently from people a hundred years ago. So, I don't know. When I think about him in the context of his time, it doesn't seem to me closed in a way that other things are not I don't know right um but it is kind of I, monolithic in a male way right but I do agree with you
1: I mean that that there obviously um he does open a space that undermines uh binary understandings mm. of um sexuality right I mean mm-hmm. there's a way in which you can queer man and there there, there, there are, I mean he does it's it's something he very self-consciously engages in and that he tries to unsettle Um, But it it is still a a male space, uh, even though what is male is unsettled, but what maybe what is female is less unsettled. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You could say that, but I I do agree there is a way in which you can enter this universe and and find something that that connects. Um, I
2: mean, something that's interesting is that I definitely do not identify with any of the female characters in the book. Yeah, And that's just interesting. He does not write female characters in a way that lend, you know, I identify with the male characters. I feel I have more in common with them. Right.
1: I I completely agree with you. And there is a, it it is a very um, uh, obvious would be a bit too harsh, but there is an obvious depiction of femininity for the time it engages Mm -hmm. all the kind of common tropes. And there's not a lot that breaks that up. I I feel that, too. Um,
2: I mean, that's something that Horvath Walzer was much, much better at, mm -hmm. depicting female power and and complexity of character and being. Um, You know, he was at this time, you know, a bit of an outsider, but his portrayal of female characters is much more complex for what it's worth. Just putting that in there.
1: No, and there are others. I do feel that's the same for Alfred Dublin, for example, mm. for Bert Lecht, for many of the writers of the time. That you know, with within certain limitations, of course. Oh, but Musil but, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Musil. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So he he seems man seems
2: <laughs> in, in the comparative spectrum a little bit. <laughs>
1: Conservative when but again, you know.
2: maybe he's protesting too much. And you know, there's clearly a homoerotic thread in his work, and maybe there's one in his life too that he's like, let's keep that door very nicely shut <laughs> and let's let's put some nails yeah, in the door I just mean. to make sure it stays good and shut, you know.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: i'm yeah.
2: um, one thing I,
1: I wanted to talk to you about briefly was um mm-hmm. when we talked earlier about the book, um it it struck me how you described the prose, Thomas Mann's prose, Mm -hmm. Um, and you you used metaphors of lightness and viscousness and uh, (laughs) (laughs) to to, to describe the language and also the differences, and I I thought it was really interesting to to hear you describe the text like it was a dish, really, with different textures, you know, and like mm. you kind of sink your teeth into like some of the words, and then some don't taste that good, and you know, all of that.
2: I, You're I was, this way better than I ever did. Oh no,
1: I'm just, <laughs> I'm just developing it. I'm I like so this. I like this. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just wondering When's if that, dinner.
2: <laughs>
1: right. I'm just wondering if if that's maybe something specific to this book? Or is it specific to your approach?
2: I think it's specific to my approach, but really specific to a translator's approach. You know, I don't, I don't think that I'm exceptional in this, you know, a translator approaching a book really has to get immersed in the texture of the prose and think hard about how that is. And I think, you know, my translator colleagues everywhere probably Think about things like this too. But so, like for me, from a translator's point of view, the prose of say chapter one is vastly different from the prose of chapter two. Um, chapter one is much more, you know, quickly forward moving and, and you know, spannend. It's got excitement and tension and suspense in it, moving forward, excitement, um, travel, expectation. And chapter two, which is the nostalgic chapter where we go back and get all the long flashback into Hans Kastorp's childhood history, the prose gets just really snarled up and thick and tight. And I, in translating it, I'm, I'm finding myself just having to pull apart these, you know, half page long, incredibly complex sentences and figure out, you know, what is the story that this sentence is telling and how can I put all these pieces back together in a way that works in English and tells a story. Like the, the part I was working working on last night is, he's talking about the the, the segment of childhood that happens in Consul Tinapo's house and the housekeeper, the housekeeper. Um, so there's a whole description of the house, where it is, what it looks like and the, the, the description travels from the exterior of the house to the interior and then to the housekeeper and the last line of it is who for hans Kastorp replaced the mother you know mm-hmm. so you know substituted for the mother and so you have this paragraph that's moving and it's just a, it's a couple sentences but moving from the exterior of this house to the very heart of the thing. And the heart of the thing is Hans Castorp has no mother left. Mm -hmm. And this this housekeeper who's part of the house is his mother. And so that, you know, the paragraph is going boom. And I'm trying to think about how to introduce the topic of being mothered in a way that will kind of achieve that in English also. So that's like a real teasing apart and putting back together.
1: It's, it's funny now, it just occurred to me as you were speaking and because I never thought of that connection, but this experience of the missing mother, motherlessness is the experience of his mother, of course. Mm. Um, his mother's mother died um, when when she was very, very young. And her first memory was seeing her mother, um, you know, her, the dead body of her mother. Oh, and the, wow. whole, uh, the whole um, narration of her life is all about the loss of the mother and also the loss of subsequent mother figures and this mm-hmm. kind of trauma of you know the motherless house um yeah. and wow. and that i just it just occurred to me that this this yeah. kind of reappears here because it was such a powerful narrative in the family
2: yeah.
1: and so I he's think writing her story too he's writing her story too and i think it's so important to remember that the identification does not always go with male figures, right? But the identification goes with the stories of the female figures in his life, mm-hmm. also, you know, and yeah. that they can be transposed into male or female
2: yeah.
1: Um, experiences. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. No that's so interesting. And it's really important like for from a translator's point of view it's so important to be thinking like this. It's not because oh we will understand the novel because we understand that there's autobiographical elements in it but no. it's important yeah. to to understand sort of the emotional shape right. of the thing and you know stories like this help under, help me understand you know where is the story coming from and how do I emphasize those threads that are really the humanness in something that could otherwise wind up seeming too cold a story these are the threads of warmth that are making the thing you know breathe and live you said that so beautifully (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's true i mean if it
1: were just autobiography would be boring right i mean there there needs to be something that that transcends that um and and makes it connect to um to to the we maybe it connects to the we after all yeah
2: and maybe this is why the book still can be moving even though it also is sort of you know pushing us away a little bit Um, but you can still feel you still feel the 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 emotional truth behind this position of self-protection right wow that's (laughs) I think I feel that's like a, I learned something talking of, talking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: did too. I was like, "Oh my god!" This, I, you know, I, I always thought of the Magic Mountain as one of the books that didn't really connect so much with what I was writing about. But mm-hmm. as I was looking at it again and talking to you, I realized it's it's everywhere in there too. And mm-hmm. um, that that's yeah, that's amazing. Um, High five! Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great talking to you. Um, yeah. Well, thank so, you so much. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you. That's it for this episode. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. Our show was produced and edited by Denise Gammon. I'm your host, R.J. McGill from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening.